Of course the children didn't look after her. They didn't empty her litter tray. They didn't clean the food bowl. They didn't give her fresh water. And so uh, my wife, Amanda, who is ruthlessly tough and efficient, on the morning of day 31, dropped this kitten off at the new home. I was working late that day, and I got home at night to find my children sobbing. She was like my sister. We loved her so much. She'd become part of our family. So my wife said, Christian, stick to what you've said. Do not change your mind. But I think what happened was, it was God. (laughs) The Holy Spirit of compassion welled up inside of me, and I had a change of mind. And I rang up the lady straight away, who I'd never met, and said... I've changed my mind. I want my cat back. (laughs) She was fine. And in fact, I heard that they got a pet duck afterwards. So that was okay. And that's the story of how Timberland, the kitten, became a part of our family ever since. Perhaps like me, you've got one or more uh, personal stories of a situation where you changed your mind. Uh, And perhaps even where that revised decision led to a better outcome or perhaps even an unexpected outcome. Of course, we've all got examples when we've changed our mind about things like what to wear or food at a restaurant or a holiday. I'm staying clear today of any discussions of changing our mind in politics. But what I am talking about is something that's at the very heart of the Christian message. In fact, one of the reasons that we're looking at the life of Jonah in this series is because it's so rich in the story of the work of how God is active in our lives. And one of the things that the story of Jonah and indeed the whole Bible illustrates is that it's impossible to enter the Christian story without understanding the need for change. We're a bit like the self-description of the man called Paul in the Bible in Romans chapter 7, who says this, I am not able to do the things that I want, and at the same time, I do the things that I don't want to do. See, one of the reasons that following Jesus is actually a challenge is that we ourselves are involved in the process. See, the theory is easy, but it's the practice that's challenging and easily something that holds us up. And this idea calls for this sense that we all need to be active in changing in order to point ourselves at God. And the theological term for this is repentance, and it's a word that just literally means changing our mind. And the thing is this, I think when we think of the Christian story, we so easily just tell the beginning. The beginning was kind of like last week when we heard about Jonah in chapter 1. God loves Jonah and invited Jonah to follow him. And I think so often when we tell the Christian story, we explain what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we kind of stop there. God loves you and he wants to be involved in your life. And the thing is, we've only told part of the story It's true so far, but there shouldn't be a full stop there. There should be a comma, and the rest should follow. And today we're hearing about the next bit, the next critical bit of what is involved in following Jesus, which is 
the need for change. Um, I, uh, in my, I work half-time for this church, but I also work half-time uh, for an organization called um, Alpha. And I've met some incredible people from around the world who have some phenomenal stories to tell. And I'd love you to watch this short video of a guy called Emmanuel. My name is Parti Emmanuel, and I participated in the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. I murdered many Tutsi under the order of bad leadership and have spent six years in prison and four years in community service. While in prison, fellow prisoners invited me to try Alpha. I went, but struggled to engage. I realized I needed to tell the truth about what I had done and wrote a letter asking for forgiveness of the relatives of those I had murdered. Life was so hard after being released from prison. I found my wife with two children that were not mine and I faced many heartbreaking situations. I didn't know how I was going to live with the genocide survivors after what I had done, my heart was filled with agony, loneliness, and fear. Encouraged by Alpha in prison, I decided to do Alpha again. I learned that Jesus forgives and experienced love in a way I had never known before. With the help of a local pastor, I went to find Vincent, whose mother and grandmother I had killed, to ask for forgiveness. I now live in a village built for genocide survivors and perpetrators. Vincent lives in the same village. We have formed a friendship and I now experience peace like I haven't experienced it before. Day-to-day -day life continues to be a challenge, but I have found forgiveness and healing for the things that I have done. God questions about life, try Alpha. Vincent's story is a, a very dramatic one and it's uh, not necessary for us to have uh, things as significant as that in our life to understand this universal need that in order to follow God we engage in change. Now, from ancient times, if you were a Jewish parent, Jonah is the story that you would have told to your children to teach them that people are imperfect, that God loves to forgive, and that to follow God, we need to change our minds to fit into God's ways. Jonah is a, a person we can connect with in this respect because we empathize with his experience. He wants to follow God, but he finds it's not as easy as it looks. The theory for him, being a prophet, someone who's announcing God's message, is easy, but he finds the doing of it is hard. He also discovers that it's a challenge to be able to give to others what you haven't received from God yourself. It's like a heavenly choir. <laughs> and he's a kind of likable character that you uh, find as an unlikely hero in a movie. 
We're sort of rooting for him. We hope he makes it. His story is exciting. It's even adventurous, and we all feel a little bit like him. Now, not to give the plot away, but in the book of Jonah, Jonah is actually called twice by God. The first time, he runs away, and that's where we find him in our story today that we'll hear in a minute. But God is patient and kind, and he calls him again. And the second time, Jonah follows through and steps into what God has for him. And so the story of Jonah is also an account of the patience and the kindness of God, who both lays before us a challenging call, but is also sort of willing us on to succeed like a loving parent who is by our side through the whole journey. I think the book also reminds us that God loves not just individuals, but communities and societies and whole nations. God cared about the Ninevites, not just as individuals, but also as a whole people and as a nation. And we see in Jonah almost a little bit of racism. It's almost as if he finds it hard to love this other, this other group of people. He doesn't like them, and it's as if the story God is also teaching him how to love people that he finds it hard to be loved. A, a small example of how this uh, inspired me recently, a few, a few weeks ago, you know, you will have heard of the shootings in the mosque in New Zealand, and I was at a, a church leaders in York uh, prayer meeting a few days later, and one of the things we wanted to do was express our solidarity with the uh, Islamic community that are in York, um, who live in the areas that our churches serve. And so we were able to, we wrote them a letter where we said, we love them, uh, our heart breaks for what we've seen happen around the world, and, and we are praying for them that they will find that they live in peace and that, that it goes well for them in this city. And then some of, the, some, of our, some of our group were able to go and deliver it personally to the mosque. Jonah's difficulty in this passage is that he wants to craft an image of God in his own design. He wants one that smites bad people like the Ninevites and who blesses good people, presumably like him. And the fact that God isn't like this black and white idea that he has seems to offend Jonah's worldview. How is it? that God can be both merciful and just at the same time. And it's as if, unless he can change and experience God firsthand and in a new way, Jonah won't be able to experience and to speak about the mercy and love that God has for other people. Now, some people don't like the book of Jonah. And one of the key reasons is it has in it a guy getting swallowed by a big fish or a whale or a shark. Now, let me just make this comment. The bit involving the big fish is just two verses. It's not even all of two verses in the whole book. Secondly, the, the whole thing of the big fish is not presented as a major part of the story. If it was a Hollywood movie, it absolutely would be like the big dramatic scene. But in God's telling of the story, it's a minor detail in a major plot that's really about other things. But 
just because I thought it would be interesting to do some research, I have dug up not one, not two, but four accounts of people who were swallowed by a shark, a whale, or a fish. Okay, are you ready? In 1771, Marshall Jenkins, a Bostonian, was swallowed by a sperm whale in the South Seas and apparently immediately vomited up. In 1888, a sailor called James Baltby on the Star of the East, a British whaling vessel, was allegedly swallowed by a sperm whale off the Falkland Islands. The Reader's Digest, in an article written about sharks, has the story of a man swallowed by a whale shark who was recovered 48 hours later, still alive, but with bleached clothes. And lastly, and the picture will come up on the screen, there is a story of a Japanese fisherman who fell overboard, was swallowed by a whale. The whale was hunted down by the fellow crew of the boat that he was on. They cut it open and found him alive. Now, if you've read the whole Bible, you'll also know that Jesus is a fan of Jonah. In Matthew 12, uh, Jesus says this, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's uh, hometown was only a few miles away from Nazareth, where Jesus will have grown up. So probably less than an hour's walk. He must have gone there on a school trip or like a, a day out, a family day to Jonah's town. Um, Perhaps even in his day, the tomb of Jonah was still marked, or there were stories about where Jonah was buried or where he lived. And perhaps even in those earliest days of Jesus' life, he began to think about Jonah and his own calling as a Messiah as well. The author Tim Keller says this, Jesus is the prophet that Jonah should have been. Jesus did not merely weep for us, he died for us. Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness its condemnation, but Jesus went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish its salvation. So we pick up the story today of Jonah praying from inside the fish. And kind of what I wanted to do in thinking about today was to recreate the experience that Jonah had. I checked with the team, and what I really wanted was like a slide, and then like a giant papier-mâché shark's mouth, and then I could sort of slide down the slide and then sort of be vomited out into the congregation. But it turns out we don't have the budget for that, but we do have the budget for um, this beanbag. (laughs) So as a symbol of being swallowed by a fish, I am now going to sit into this beanbag, <laughs> representing Jonah being swallowed by the fish. It's not even big enough, this beanbag. Um, this morning, I also got up really early. I think Jonah was sort of curled up a bit like this, was he? He wouldn't have had a seat. No. This morning, I got up really early, and I went to film uh, and record some authentic whale sounds in the North Sea. So we're, we're going to listen to that as well, just to help us be immersed yeah that's it so just take a moment to center yourself we're with Jonah in the belly of this big fish 
and I'm going to read his prayer. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the currents swirled about me, and your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. This is the point where I would have slid out the shark. Jonah's prayer quotes more than 20 of the Psalms. He starts, in fact, with Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord. And then he goes on, from the deep, I called for help. And this is great. It's a good start. He's in the belly of this fish and he's decided to pray. What a great response to do. But just notice through this prayer that it doesn't begin with a tone of repentance. He hasn't accepted responsibility for his situation. He's not even asking God for forgiveness. He goes on, you hurled me into the depths. If you were here last week, you'll know that's not true. Jonah was on the boat, and he said to the sailors, you should throw me overboard. So it was Jonah's idea that he would be thrown into the sea, and yet in his lament inside this fish, he's saying, you, oh, you did that to me. You did this horrible thing that put me in the sea. In fact, he carries on exaggerating. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. Well, we don't know what mountains these are. He's in the ocean. So he's in a mountain of oceans. He says, the earth, the earth barred me forever. It wasn't forever, it was three days. You can, almost, you can almost feel the whinging in his voice, the complaining, the sort of the woe is me. And he still hasn't actually come to repenting. Feeling sad, feeling miserable, complaining, being in a grump, being unhappy with your circumstances might be something that leads us to repentance and this idea of a changed mind, but they're not the same thing. It possibly might lead to it, but it's not, Jonah hasn't yet repented. He's feeling sorry for himself, he's complaining, and he's blaming God for everything. And the actual idea of repenting is a really simple thing. In fact, it's as, it's as if uh, it's the idea of saying, I am standing and going in this direction, and I'm just going to change and go in this direction. And the word repentance doesn't contain much idea of, of emotion or theater. It's not necessarily a dramatic or, or hugely heartfelt idea. It's, it begins with a change, a decision that's felt in the mind. Now, by seven, verse 7, Jonah hits gold, and this is what he says. 
When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. He's beginning to acknowledge, this is what I've done. I've turned away from God's love. He's recognizing, I'm going in one direction, and I'm going in the wrong direction. I need to start thinking about going in a different direction. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. Perhaps he's beginning to recognize that there is going to be an element of cost in saying yes to what God has asked him to do, that he needs to embrace the the difficulty, the challenge of it, if not even accept that there will be an element of sacrifice for him to follow God. And then it's as if he comes to his senses and he says, what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And you can see him turning. He's gone from his misery, his pain, his lamenting, his self-pity, but he's gone on a journey that's taken to a point of clarity of focus where he says, I get it. I'm going in this direction, and I actually need to be going in this direction. One of the challenges that I and probably you have is that you're a bit like Jonah. I'm a bit like Jonah. And we're probably like Jonah in one of two ways. Either we need to change because we're far from God. But the second way in which we might be like Jonah is that we need to change, but we are in other ways close to God. In either of those categories... We are still called to change, and change is important in order to press into what God has for us. I think this idea is beautifully illustrated in the gospel story of the prodigal son. It's in Luke chapter 15. And in fact, if you follow the, the parable, it's, it's probably written and spoken by Jesus in a way that maps the four chapters of the story of Jonah. If you know the story, you'll know there's a father who represents God. And he has two sons, and his two sons are lost in different ways. And here it's uh, depicted in a painting by the Russian artist uh, Losev. And um, in this picture, you can see the father. And the, so the father represents God in the, in the telling of this story. And on the right is uh, the younger son, who went far away from God. He literally left home. He literally went to another country. He spent his inheritance. And then he got to a point where he realized, I need to change, turn direction around, and I need to come back to my father. And he comes close to the father. He's kneeling. He's humble. The father's receiving. And we can see that clearly as somebody who's changing and coming back to God. But the second son is also in the picture. He's there at the back, on the left. He's the older son. He's the son that never went a great distance away from the father. And yet you can see how the artist has depicted him as somebody who's holding himself at a distance from God. He's close enough to be in the home, but it's as if he's choosing to keep a degree of separation, not too close to the father, holding himself at a distance I wonder what he's talking about. I wonder if he's criticizing this 
son. I wonder if he's wondering about his life and what he was given. And if you know in the story, the, uh, what happens is the father restores the younger son, and the older son complains and says, this isn't fair. Like, he's been terrible, and now you're being nice to him. And the father has to remind him and say, all of that was available to you all along. You were here, and you could have had it. I wonder which of these two children you identify with. You might identify with the one that's far from God, that turns around and comes a long distance to come back. But you might identify with the person who's sort of close to God. Everyone else might say, yeah, yeah, they're great. They're going to church and they do this and they do that and the other. But in your heart, you know God's speaking to you and you're not following through with it. And you can be like that other son who's saying, I'm close but not that close. I'm following, but I'm not following everything, or I'm, I'm holding back deliberately from God. Whichever one we are, God loves us. God invites us to follow him, but he calls us to change. We're going to have a chance to respond and think in a moment, but I want to sum up with a, uh, a great um, quote from Romans chapter 2, a book we've already um, looked at, and it's in the Passion Translation, which um, I think just brings it out really well. Do the riches of his extraordinary kindness make you take him for granted and despise him? Haven't you experienced how kind and understanding he has been to you? Don't mistake his tolerance for acceptance. Do you realize that all of the wealth of his extravagant kindness is meant to melt your heart and lead you into repentance? Why don't we take a minute and just literally in the silence, each of us think and maybe just ask God, you know, where am I? What are you saying to me? Something might come to mind. It might even be like a a tiny thing. It might be just a symbol of that son in the picture taking a small step closer to God. Or it might be a huge thing. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Let's allow God to speak to each of us. And then we're going to take that thing and respond um, in another way that will follow. So let me just pray for us. Father, as we um, think now, come by your spirit and speak to each one of us and show us the ways in which you are calling us to turn and to follow you. Amen.